0: Welcome to Lifelong Learning on ReachMD. I'm your host, Alicia Sutton, and today we're broadcasting from the annual meeting of the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions. I'm intrigued by this next interview because it's been described as part creepy and part surprise. It's about how scientists and companies are leveraging big social data to develop new insights into customers and what they want. With me today is Jennifer Golbeck. She's Director of the Human-Computer Interaction Lab and Associate Professor in the College of Information Studies at the University of Maryland. Jen's a world leader in social media research. She tracks the rise of social networks and data analytics, how new computational techniques are revealing hidden traits of millions of people online, and how this impacts the future of healthcare. Jen, welcome to the show. We're glad you could join us today. It's great to be here. Thanks. So let's start with the big picture of uh, what is big data.
1: Yeah. You know, big data itself is it's tracking all kinds of information, whether it's coming from us through social media, which is a lot of what I talked about here today, but also from sensors. You know, if you have a smart light bulb or a smart toaster, it's actually putting data up on the Internet, Uh, traffic cameras, all sorts of places have these sensors that are collecting data putting it online and we can do things with it. Medical records are obviously a great example of that too. So we've got this vast ecosystem of data and as a computer scientist, I'm really excited about coming up with
0: new ways to process that data and the things we can do with it. Excellent, so it is clearly all around us and I think that you know generally we have a sense that we're providing data, but do, do we really know how much data we're providing? I mean, we have no idea in, in a couple
1: different ways. One, information gets collected about us in all sorts of spaces that we don't think it does. And sometimes we might know that it's being collected. For example, if you have like a loyalty card that you use when you go shopping, you might figure out that they're keeping track of your purchases, but we don't know who that's being shared with or what they're doing with it. And there's a lot of data that we're not even aware is being collected. Like your phone tracks every movement you make, but... Did you know it keeps track of the places you spend the greatest amount of time? That's in there. You can access it. But we don't even think that Apple or Android or Google is looking at what are the
0: places we visit and how long are we spending there and when do we go. But they analyze it all the time. It's interesting. And let's, let's take a look at a company we know certainly has a lot of data on us, and that would be Facebook. Um, a billion users, and these users provide us with behavioral preference and demographic data. So what can we learn from what Facebook is doing with the data? Uh, It's a good question. So we're not sure what Facebook
1: is doing internally. But we can certainly look at what other people are doing with the data that they take from Facebook. And basically they can learn anything they want. Uh, This is research that we do in my lab and I have a lot of colleagues in this space who are doing research. And we can pick kind of any trait that interests us, whether it's demographics, like your gender, your race, your religion, uh, preferences. So we look at political leaning, sexual orientation, uh, what kind of movies you like, what kind of music you listen to, um, all the way to things that are deeply intrinsic to us, like what are our personalities like, how smart are we? Any trait that we've picked to investigate, we've been able to pretty accurately infer about people just by looking at what they put on Facebook and not from obvious things. There are subtle little clues that when you have a billion people actually end up
0: revealing a lot about us that we wouldn't expect. So what are people doing with that data? They've got it, it's in front of them, it's telling them a very interesting story Now what? That's the big question.
1: You know, right now, the only real way these things are being used is in e-commerce one way or another. Sometimes to target ads or to recommend products. So if you think of Amazon and Netflix, they recommend movies that you want to see, shows to watch, or items to buy based on other things that you've bought. That's kind of long-standing technology that that does fit in this space, and it's not too scary, but there's a potential for this kind of information to be used in ways that are kind of frightening and life-changing, determining your ability for health insurance, what kind of treatments you receive at a hospital, Mm -hmm. uh, whether or not you'll get hired for a job or receive a loan. Those aren't happening yet that we know of, but it's something that just in a couple years, could actually happen, and we need to do a lot of thinking about whether we want
0: that to happen or if we need to make some changes to the way this works. Right, and I I definitely want to talk to you about policy, but you just mentioned target, and I know... In your presentation here, you made an interesting story. You gave an interesting story. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so this is an article the New York Times published a few years ago, um, and it starts out with this great example of a dad who's just irate and calls his local target, uh, yelling at the manager about a flyer that his 15-year-old daughter received with a bunch of ads for baby products, diapers and bottles and cribs. Oh, you are trying to encourage her to get pregnant. Why would you do this? And two weeks later, he talks to the manager and apologizes and says, You know, it turns out that she was pregnant and Target knew before she told us. Uh, And it's like you can hardly believe that such a good data story
0: exists, but it's a true story. Very interesting. I'm sure there's a lot of perspectives on who was right and who was wrong in that dialogue, which kind of gets you to that policy question. Uh, Where do you see this evolving?
1: Yeah and you know Target themselves in that article or or one of the guys who had worked for Target said you know there's things that are legal to do but that doesn't necessarily mean that we should do them. The problem is that you can't rely on a company having ethics and handling your data properly right. You need some kind of guarantee of that because something could come along down the line where they change their mind and start doing things that you don't want. So there's there's a few ways that this could be addressed and in The way that I have hoped it to be addressed for the last five years that I'm starting to lose hope in was that there would be kind of a market pressure. That people would say our data is important to us. We don't want it shared. We don't want it analyzed. You know, Facebook, Google, whoever, I'm going to put it there and you can have it to provide the services that I want. But you can't do anything else with it. And if you're going to, then I'll go use some other service. And I kept saying for years, you know, there's going to be a competitor to Facebook that comes along that offers all these protections. And those competitors have come along, but people haven't switched because the value in Facebook is your friends, and they're all on Facebook. They're not on whatever the new site is. So we haven't seen the market really push companies to develop these very strict privacy-respecting policies. I think what we're going to have to see then is a kind of legal solution to it. Um, And I said in my talk today that Congress kind of can hardly handle the Internet at this point, Mm -hmm. let alone social media. But I think the way that we're going to see it is that there's now a group of class action lawsuits that are going through the court systems that are... Uh, challenging these companies, Google and Facebook, about how they've used people's data. Um, Regardless of how those lawsuits turn out, I think that's the kind of thing that's eventually going to push us towards legislation that regulates who owns data. Is it you? Do you own the data about yourself, or do companies own it? And what do you do with it from there?
0: Uh, That's interesting. If you're just joining us, this is Lifelong Learning on ReachMD, and we're talking about big data with Jen Golbeck. So, Jen, there's, you, you gave your presentation today. What, what do you think were some of the key takeaways that you hoped people left the room thinking about?
1: Well, I always like to creep people out with the talk, <laughs> and, and I was looking at Twitter over lunch, and it seems like I definitely did that. I scared some people, so that's good. Um, but, you know, I want people to understand that this isn't kind of pie-in-the-sky technology that maybe will come and maybe won't. It's coming. It works already, and it's going to be quickly and easily available in a few years. So the challenge isn't should we use it, it's how are we going to use it because it's going to be there. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to really push people to think about, you know, as an organization that's using this technology, you do have the ability to make ethical decisions. You don't want to creep out people that you're working with. You don't want to develop a reputation as an organization that doesn't respect people's privacy. But it can be really tempting to kind of ignore that line, you know, for people who don't want you using their data this way to reach out and access the people that you really want to target. So I hope what people came away with is an understanding of where we're going in this space and some hard questions to think about on what's the right way to actually use this technology in a couple Mm -hmm. years when it's quickly available.
0: Right. And the audience is here at this conference are obviously educators in one capacity or another, the stakeholders here. So they're always measuring something. They're measuring change in performance or knowledge, (laughs) awareness, and whatnot. So maybe that will open their eyes up a bit more that uh, there's more data for them to gather.
1: And it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of people since I gave the talk this morning, and some of them are saying, oh, you know, we really do have to think about what's the right way to do this. But a lot of people are also seeing the opportunities in it, that we can use this to track whether patients are going to comply with, say, their diabetes medication there's a lot of discussion of that Um, and what can we do to help patients achieve better outcomes to communicate with them better and I think that's good because while I do want to convey the kind of creepy message that comes with this the fact is that there's a lot of good things that can come from this technology too. the challenge is figuring out how to do it the right way and I'm glad that people are looking at both sides of that the creepy part but also what are the really great things that we can do to help people
0: using these technologies right Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this direction, and were you doing math equations at two oh. years old? <laughs> it's a very... I did
1: that story in uh, in one of our breakout sessions. It's a very long, complicated path. But I did get my first computer when I was five years old, I guess. We had a Commodore 64 that my dad brought home. And uh, I remember he brought it home on Good Friday because I was, like, all excited for Easter. So I wrote my first computer program in BASIC that just printed Happy Easter in an infinite loop on the screen. It was two lines at of code. At five years age. At five years old. So I kind of should have known then... Um, But I actually changed my major to computer science my fourth year of undergrad. Uh, So it took me a while to come back and realize that's what I should have been doing. But the whole time, I I was studying economics at the University of Chicago for most of undergrad with the guys who wrote Freakonomics, right? right? So not financial economics, right? But how people behave and how we can understand that. And I think I'm still doing that kind of thing. I, I use my economics background a lot in my computer science because I'm interested in this intersection of computing technology and what we understand socially about people. I like to put those things together.
0: Right, and took you down a path where suddenly curly fries was an interesting topic.
1: Curly fries are like my representation on the internet at this point, yeah. Tell us that story. So this is a study from colleagues of mine uh, out of Cambridge, and they were looking at how you can predict things about people by analyzing their likes on Facebook. And one of the really surprising things is that in their study they published Uh, They looked at how you can infer people's intelligence and they had people take an intelligence test and they were guessing their scores and they published the four likes that were most predictive of high intelligence and you know some people are like oh you know it's easy to guess these things from likes because maybe I like the Mensa page or maybe I like the challenging puzzles page and that indicates that I'm smart and their four most predictive likes were science which you can say all right smart people like science thunderstorms, the Colbert rapport, and curly fries, right? (laughs) And Especially curly fries. You go, what does that have to do with intelligence? And the answer, it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. What they're discovering there is a pattern of behavior in the network of p- people on facebook so it doesn't have anything to do with the content of the page but rather it's the behavior of a bunch of people and what
0: similar behaviors reveal which is pretty cool very cool very cool and as you presented this today um you certainly had some interesting Q and A from the audience you want to share a couple of questions that they asked Yeah, I've had so many great discussions with people about
1: this. I talked to some people who were using social media tools and social network analysis, who we know and what kind of relationships we have to put together better groups of people in classes for continuing education, because it turns out that affects the outcomes. You can learn more if you're with people that you know, but the right mix of new and old people. I have had clinicians talk to me about how we can use these tools to affect patient outcomes. How do we take all these medical records that we have maybe cross-reference it with social network data or other data, and use that to make inferences about whether people are following their treatment protocols, whether that smoker who promises he quit is actually still secretly buying cigarettes on the side, and how do you communicate with them better to make sure that they're gonna see better outcomes. So there was a lot of focus that I was very impressed by on how these tools can be used to make things better for patients and to make physicians and healthcare professionals m- more able to communicate effectively with their patients
0: right what, what do you what do you want to see five years out? Where do you hope we are in terms of uh, whether it's the application of all of those disparate pieces of data that turned into a great story or the protection of privacy where are we
1: yeah I mean I think that's two very separate questions that are going to go along with each other. Technology-wise, which is the side I like to stay on because I'm not a policy person, um, technology-wise, I hope we're starting to see some really high-impact social outcomes. Public health is a great space to see that. Uh, we have projects now where we're looking at PTSD in the military. Those sorts of things can have like, such great impact. So I would love to see these technologies that right now are at the stage where we've kind of convinced ourselves that they work, to taking them into application spaces that are really making people's lives better. On the policy side, I actually hope my life becomes more difficult because I'd like to see us moving down the path of greater data protection where right now I can go online and get whatever data I want and it's public and it's free and I'm not violating any laws or rules by getting it. I think it would be great if there's rules in place that say I can't just take that data, that I need to have permission because we can find ways to do the work regardless. And ultimately, I think you want empowered consumers who have control over their data. And if that makes my life harder, I'm fine
0: with that. You know, I want people to be happy with how their information is used. Right. But it sounds like a good place to land for sure. Yeah. Jen, thank you so much for joining us. Very insightful and uh, lots for us to think about. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been watching Lifelong Learning on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This series is co-produced with the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions. For more information and a full library of medical broadcasts, please visit ReachMD.com. I'm your host, Alicia Sutton, and we'll see you again soon.